Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined today by Rosie Brooks. Hi, Rosie. Hello. Rosie, what are we listening to today? We're listening to two pieces, Cox and Box and the Pirates of Penzance. Well, I've heard of Pirates of Penzance. That's by a very famous duo. Yes, yeah, Gilbert and Sullivan. And Cox and Box is by the same composer, Sir Arthur Sullivan, but it's by a different writer. It's one of the earlier pieces. First up, Cox and Box. So let's listen to what remains of its overture composed by Arthur Sullivan. was the overture to Cox and Box. The music was written by Sir Arthur Sullivan, one half of that very famous duo, Gilbert and Sullivan. And Rosie Brooks is here to help us with this story and a little bit of the background. Rosie, tell us what you know about the librettist to this, because it wasn't Gilbert. Um, Well, before knowing we were going to discuss it today, I had actually not heard of him at all. This was someone that Sir Arthur Sullivan partnered with before he worked with W.S. Gilbert called F.C. Bernand. Yes, and Bernand did not even originate the story. The story originated with Madison Morton, who wrote a farcical play, non-musical play called Box and Cox. The names originally were the other way around in 1847. They were part of this troupe called the Moray Minstrels who gathered to give these little productions. And there was another production that they were hoping to put on, which was just a little two-person play, a two-hander of one of Offenbach's operettas called The Two Blind Men. And Bernand had this idea to make Morton's Box and Cox into something that could then be turned into something musical. And he got connected with Sullivan. And that's how this became a piece which then has lived on and really been brought into the fold by various troops that present Gilbert and Sullivan in the repertoire. It's interesting because it's not a Gilbert and Sullivan piece, but Gilbert and Sullivan troops will will present it with some frequency. Yeah, I mean, I having not heard it, but then I think there is 
there's a group of what is there about five or six that are the big famous ones and all the other works around it tend to have less attention but actually you're right I was surprised how many productions of it there are floating around and I think amateur companies can do it quite easily can't they because it's quite a small (laughs) cast it is and it's just three actors and in fact the three actors in the original farce that Morton wrote it was two men who were the lodgers and the landlady was a woman Mrs. Bouncer ah okay but they changed it (laughs) to three men because their players, when they originally did it, were all men. So it was easier just to make it a man, right? Right. And modern performances sometimes change the landlord back into a landlady. Yeah, because it could be either. It doesn't affect the plot, does it? It's No, not really. No. <laughs> so it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> well, we'll talk about the plot in a moment. But it's interesting to talk a little bit about the context. It was the middle of the 1860s when this shows up. Rosie and I have previously talked about Trial by Jury and HMS Pinafore, Trial by Jury being the earliest truly successful collaboration between Gilbert and Sullivan, which mm-hmm. was 1875. It was not quite a decade earlier when Cox and Box first appears, depending on what you count as the premiere, either 1866 or 1867 whether it was professional or this smaller troop of yeah. players. So it's not that long after the actual original play was written? About two decades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's sort of in living memory. It was very popular. It was successful enough that it went from being a small production where it was just accompanied by a piano. In fact, Sullivan even said he didn't really fully write down the music. He just played it when the players were doing the show. Oh, wow. But ultimately, he fully orchestrated it. Mm-hmm. And they had a, an orchestra when they did a full-on premiere in 1867. And it was one of those productions that, interestingly enough, the reviewer, Mr. Gilbert, oh. saw the production. And he, he had thoughts about it. He said, Mr. Sullivan's music is, in many places, of too high a class for the grotesquely absurd plot to which it is wedded. So <laughs> it's... It's kind of funny. It's a little bit of the same comments that were given to Trial by Jury, where Sullivan and his music were so well regarded that he was always given a little bit more credit Mm -hmm. than the comic writers who he was accompanying in some of these early successes. Well, he's known as Sir Arthur Sullivan, isn't he? And I think Gilbert was knighted later, but it doesn't ever get included in because he wasn't at the time of their most famous works. It tends to trip off the tongue, Sir Arthur Sullivan. Right. Although at this point in time, of course, he was not Sir Arthur Sullivan. Neither of them were, yeah. But he was already a very successful composer. Mm-hmm. All right. Would you like to tell us about who our characters are here in this play? We know there are only three of them. Yeah. So we have James John Cox, whose job is a hatter who makes hats, and he noticeably works in the day. And then we have John James Box who works for a printer's, and he works in the evening. And then we have Mr. Mr. Bouncer, or even Sergeant Bouncer, it says in the libretto, and he is the landlord. And that's the scene. And like any good farce, there are doors. Yeah. Because yeah. people are going to be going in and out of those doors with precise timing. Absolutely. So the first person we see on stage is going to be Mr. Cox. Mm-hmm. A little disgruntled about a haircut he's received. He's worried he thinks it makes him look like he's about to go off to the army and 
the landlord, Bouncer, arrives. Yes, and he just walks in there. I think this is very notable. He just <laughs> walks right into the room and there's nothing unusual about that. I don't think I'd be very happy if my landlord just walked into my apartment. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> but that's fine. At the minute he hears Army... It triggers in him to sing the first outing of this particular song, which is Rataplan, and it's got that fast and, and repetitive use of the same words. And Marshall, mm. it brings everyone on stage back to their Army days <laughs> and the patriotic sense of duty and falling into line and bouncer not only does that because that's important to him but he also makes use of it as the story goes along Uh distracting as it is plan (laughs) well (laughs) bouncer that is a sound that i have heard before in opera in daughter of the regiment ah yes like like the drums yes i've I've heard that rataplan is simply the french way of saying what in english we might call a -a ratatat ratatat ah right and it references his military history right the song also sounds a sort of pastiche of baroque I think it's got that kind of handle. It's, it sounds like it's, it's it's a nod to kind of Baroque era. Yeah. Oh, the Baroque. Yes. Yes. That earlier. Yes. It has that older sound of the mm-hmm. of that earlier style of composing. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of oratorio, pre, pre-opera, certainly pre-operetta. Yes. Yeah. Sullivan's having a lot of fun. Yeah. It reminds us of the extensive musical training that Sullivan has had. Yeah. And he will have a lot of fun in a lot of his operettas, playing around with his knowledge of other composers. Yeah, it might in jokes for the audience maybe as well a little bit. Yes, yes. Rataplan, yeah. rataplan. So Bouncer's done his distraction, uh-huh. but Cox is not entirely distracted. 
He's not, because he wants to bring up with his landlord a few issues with the current rental situation. The first of which is that he's complaining that he feels that the flat that he lives in often smells of smoke. Tobacco smoke. Specifically tobacco smoke, because Bouncer suggests maybe it's a chimney. And he said, no, 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 it smells of tobacco smoke, cigarette smoke. And Bouncer replies, well, it's possibly something above in the attic. From the lodger who mm. he always sees the man going upstairs yeah. when he's going down to work in the morning. Yeah. But Cox is not having any of that because obviously the smoke would rise. So already there's there's holes in Bouncer's narrative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't quite work. And then Cox has a few more concerns. Cox is also concerned that people seem to be stealing his things. Coles would and Bouncer suggests it might be the cat. Because <laughs> cats are famous for stealing yeah. coal. <laughs> which, by the way, when, when it might be the cat, it made me think of the, the line which will appear later in Pinafore. It oh, it was not me, it was the cat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's obviously a running joke, isn't it? So yeah. as, as Cox is getting more and more suspicious and irritated, Bouncer goes... He goes back to sing the Rataplan song. And Cox... Snaps to attention. Rataplan, rataplan. <laughs> <laughs> and heads off to work. That's right. Yeah. To Bouncer's great relief. Yeah, yeah, because it's cutting it a bit fine. Well, I mean, that's why you have to have all those doors and split-second <laughs> timing, isn't it? <laughs> well, just as Cox leaves mm-hmm. and Bouncer gets to give a sigh of relief, of course, the next door opens and... Box enters. He's just come back from work as he works nights. And one presumes having worked nights wants to have a nap, maybe some breakfast and relax. And it doesn't seem to worry him that the landlord is in his flat. No, he's used to it. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Because the landlord has just taken a moment to rearrange things from the way Cox keeps his room uh-huh. to the way Box keeps his room, including switching around the bed because Box puts his feet at one end of the bed and his head at the other, and vice versa for Cox. This must be quite an exhausting show to perform in, I would imagine, particularly if you're a bouncer. I think any farce probably yeah. is exhausting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but for bouncer, he makes it clear that it's all worth it because he gets the rent from two lodgers, and that's the motivation. Mm-hmm. There's double money, yeah, yeah. Risky, but there's compensation. The implication is he's been getting away with this for a while, isn't it? Absolutely. This is a setup that's been there for a little while, yeah. But Box has some concerns as well once he says goodbye to Bouncer and Bouncer's left the room. Well, he's bumped into Cox on the stairs and he's thinking, who's that? They keep seeing each other, but they don't know who the other one is. Yeah, always leaving when I'm coming home. Yeah. Always coming home when I'm leaving. Yeah. I mean, it's very amazing timing that their jobs are that regular. Yeah. Honestly, and because like at some point they won't be so regular and that, well, that could be problematic. Someone could have a day off, for example, and then that, that could just, happen. Yeah. But meanwhile, there's Box. He'd like a nap. Yeah. He'd like breakfast. Yeah. So he puts some bacon on and and just puts his head down for a moment, having worked all evening. And now, because he wants a nap and because he wants breakfast, we get what is arguably a very silly song. <laughs> we get the bacon lullaby. Yeah. Hushed is the bacon on my grid. I'll take a nap and close my eye. Soon I'll be nodding, nodding, nid. Nid, nodding, nodding, nodding. Amazing.
Well, the bacon lullaby that Box have sung for himself while he cooks his bacon on his fire has done its job. He's just going to have a little nap before he has his breakfast. While the bacon is there cooking and a most remarkable and unusual thing happens. Well, Cox, who has obviously headed into work thinking it was a normal day, has discovered to his delight that his rather lovely boss has given him the day off. Oh, a day off. Everyone loves a day off. Mm -hmm. So obviously the first thing he'll do is head home to his apartment, which he presumes is empty, what with the fact he rents it out and everything. (laughs) Pays his rent in full every month, yes. exactly. And interestingly, he finds bacon cooking on his fire. Hmm. Not very happy about that. Tosses it out the window. And he he puts on his own mutton chop. Mm-hmm. Oh, and he and he looks for his uh his lucifers as he calls them. I mean, I would call them matches. Yeah, but yeah. Are you familiar with that term, lucifers? In First World War songs, it's the lucifer. It's it, um ah. pack up your troubles in your old kit bag. It's and find me a lucifer to light my fag from from that. I knew it was matches from all the songs, and so it would have been not that far from that era. So it's it's sort of. 40 years later, sure. but it was, but yeah, Lucifer as a match is definitely in early songs. There we mm. are. Or it could be a flint. It wouldn't necessarily be matches. It's a lighter, early lighter, something that creates flame. But yet again, he finds that the things in his flat are, are missing. Hmm. We're not where they, the way they left, he left them. Yeah. But very unusual to find bacon cooking, cooking. in his fire. Yeah. He hasn't, one presumes, noticed someone is asleep in there. Well, depends how they choose to stage it. Yeah, yeah. That that it's it's hidden from the main room where the the bacon is cooking. Uh-huh. And then again, making use of the doors, he he goes away for a moment, and Box wakes up to check on his bacon. And then there's a mutton chop that what Cox has just put on, and that goes out the window. And of course, yeah. if you're having fun with this, of course it lands on someone out the window each time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, you never see anyone else, but there can be a voice out there. There's like, hey, there's yeah, yeah. a spell on me and all that. But, but <laughs> finally, finally, the two catch sight of each other in the flat. Mm-hmm. And they both assume the other is an intruder because they both know that they are legitimate tenants of the room. So who on earth is this other person? Right. And as they're questioning each other, who else freely walks into that room the landlord bouncer and he's aghast to see them both mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. and we're going to get the one trio in the show which is just charming before we turn to the trio i just want to mention a word i think we both learned in reading about this this show is called a triumviretta mm. i would have simply called it a three-hander the fact yeah. that it's three Three actors only. Triumviretta. Yeah, that's a lovely word. So this is the trio with Cox, Box, and the landlord, Sergeant Bouncer. Printer, printer, take a hint. Leave the room or else shall I. Vainly struggle with the fire, with the raging fierce desire. To do you an injury and Hatter, hatter, cease your clatter, leave the room or else shall I vainly struggle with the fire, with the raging fierce desire to do you an injury and injury. 
What are you doing in my room? Your room. If on that's no bed. Here is my seat for rent. Your deceit is very fine. If you come to that, sir. If you come to that, sir. Here is my turn up bouncer. He can stay for the hatter. Turn up for the hatter. Bouncer, 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 bouncer. Write a plan. 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 for everyone and that rataplan of bouncers was diverting for a moment but not diverting enough to get them off of the concern that they are inhabiting the same flat cox and box and they're demanding of bouncer that he solve this problem exactly because they both established that they are paid up tenants they've both shown their documents haven't they to each other so they've realized that there is no intruder here There is no intruder, and in fact, the person who's caused the problem is the landlord who's trying to get two rents from one flat. Shocking behavior. It's interesting because even in the earliest days of this show, there were modifications made, not just there were different premiere dates, but there were cuts made and revisions made and different lengths that this show could be presented at. And you might find a version where Bouncer says, oh, I have another room, just give me some time to prepare it. And the two men are left alone for a little while. Or you might find one that just cuts it short and Bouncer says, hey, you guys, um, don't you both like music? In any event, they both discover that they like music and they like singing. And we get this sweet little song (laughs) that they sing. So this is a little bit of the duet serenade called The Buttercup. (laughs) 
Mr. Cox and Mr. Box seem to be getting on a little bit better here, and they they resume chatting with each other, and it turns out that Cox references his wife. But it's not really his wife. It's his wife-to-be. Mm-hmm. But then he's not particularly nice about her. He's, Fox says, congratulations, and he said, no, you needn't disturb yourself. <laughs> <laughs> no, he seems quite relieved that it's bathing season and his wife runs a business, which means she manages bathing machines. What on earth such... is a bathing machine? <laughs> oh, um, there was a, a series, I think it was a BBC series called Sanditon, where he was trying to set up a seaside community in England and they had a wonderful depiction of oh. these bathing machines. Are they like those sort of where you step out? Yeah, yeah, I think I've seen pictures of them, yeah. They were essentially modesty coverings where yeah, women yeah. could go out into the water and enjoy the water but be shielded from public view. Wow. Fascinating. Sounds very Victorian mm-hmm. to me. But he was quite happy, Mr. Cox, that his intended ran this business so that he didn't have to spend time with her. And as they continue talking, it turns out his intended's name is Penelope Ann. And Mr. Box also once had an intended. Whose name happened to be Penelope Ann as well it doesn't take long for them to figure out it's the same Penelope Ann. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Box somehow did not end up marrying her. Mm -hmm. How did he get out of that? By faking his own death. Ooh. Well, we're not going to play it right now, but he does musically explain exactly how he did that. (laughs) Justifies it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. And in such a way as to tempt Mr. Cox, perhaps to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And now in the plot of all of this, there's a little bit of difference in these various versions. In one longer version that I saw, the next piece of information is they get word that Mr. Cox's intended Penelope Ann appears to have perished at sea Uh and left her entire estate to her intended husband. And she was very successful in business, so this would be a sizable sum. Right, so the two men start arguing, oh no, I was her intended husband, Uh oh no, I was. Which is kind of funny until shortly thereafter, another communication comes. And it turns. (laughs) Oh joy, oh joy, she's alive and well. So they go back to saying, oh no, you're in her intended. Oh no, you are. (laughs) So that all goes on until... The next communication comes through. Not only is she alive and well, she's on her way. (laughs) And ultimately, we never see Penelope Ann, by the way. She's a concept. These letters of communication come through the door in the hands of none other than Bouncer. And the final communication regarding Penelope Ann, it rhymes with Cox. It rhymes with Box. Three cheers for Knox. So the communication has come through that they might not be interested, but frankly, nor is she. She's moved on herself. To a gentleman whose name happens to rhyme with both Cox and Box. What Can- are the odds? <laughs> <laughs> I, I say 100%. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Better than evens, yeah. So there's an immediate union about to take place with a Mr. Knox. Yes. Yes, and they are both overjoyed and... The other thing they discover, there's so much that they have in common with one another. Yeah, both beautiful singing voices, similar appearance, maybe. (laughs) Box says, 
the more I gaze on your features, the more I am convinced that you are my long lost brother. Aha. Uh-huh. And Cox says, That was the very observation I was going to make to you. Tell me, do you have such a thing as a strawberry mark on your left arm? A birthmark? <laughs> no. <gasps> then you must be my brother because he has no mark on his left arm either. That's amazing. <laughs> That's conclusive, isn't it? Isn't it just, yeah. (laughs) And then we launch into the joyous finale, the two of them having agreed to share the room together as happy brothers. And that's Cox and Box. Lovely. My hand upon it, joined with yours, agree the house will hold us. And two good lodges bounce against him in his arms and fold us. Oh yes, yes, oh arms. Remember, of course, when I mounted a horse in Her Majesty's force, as one of the yeomen who'd cope with the foreman, all in an invasion, frighten the nation, and there's no occasion to sing. Red plan, red plan, red plan, red plan, red plan, red plan, 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 This is Opera for Everyone. I'm Pat Wright, and I'm here with Rosie Brooks, and we have just finished our opening act, Cox and Box by Sullivan and another librettist, F.C. Bernand. And now we're getting to the main event, the Gilbert and Sullivan operetta Pirates of Penzance. This is one of my favorites, I have to say. I've seen this quite a few times. I've seen it a few times myself, but I I think you've probably seen it more than I have. Yeah, I have a friend that played Frederick in it a few years ago, and I think we saw him in pretty much every every performance of it when he was in it. How wonderful. Well, if you don't know who Frederick is or any of the other characters, don't worry. We're going to fill you in on this whole story, a lot of the backstory about the show. And I suspect even if you don't think you know anything about this story, you know a little bit. This is one of those shows that has seeped into popular culture, whether you live in the U.S. or the U.K. or other places as well. Pirates of Penzance, probably the most popular of the Gilbert and Sullivan shows. Yeah, I think so. I think it is. The Mikado's nearly there, but I think think Pirates of Penzance is the most regularly performed, actually. Yeah. So, Rosie, one of the things I'm really glad we did was Pinafore before Pirates of Penzance. It Mm -hmm. is the order that Gilbert and Sullivan did them in as well. Opera for Everyone's episode 89 was when we did Trial by Jury and HMS Pinafore. And now here we are with episode 92, Pirates of Penzance, as well as Cox and Box. And Pirates of Penzance had its big premiere in New York City. Yeah, which is fascinating. I didn't know that before we started looking into the background. But you know the reason why. It was for copyright reasons, because their works in America had run riot and they weren't in control of the versions that were being done all over America. So they needed to go over to the States to take control by having a premiere there and and 
making the original versions the, the, the definitive versions. Pinafore in particular mm. was the one that was being presented without properly yeah. getting the Gilbert and Sullivan stamp of approval or copyright. Yeah, and they would have been, presumably, they wouldn't have seen any of the money for any of these either. Definitely not. And so many people had gotten a hold of the of the libretto, of the words, and then they had improvised the orchestration for the show. And badly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no one could match Sullivan. Yeah, so. Yeah. <laughs> so of course it was badly. <laughs> <laughs> and they had gone over to protect their rights because Sullivan could do it better. And Gilbert could do the staging better. Yeah. Gilbert and Sullivan could make a better production than anyone trying to copy them, yeah. quite simply. And they came over and they did. They were superstars when they came over to the U.S. And they, based out of New York, they went other places as well. But they were feted and uh, celebrated. They had a very busy social schedule. But at the same time, they had another plan up their sleeves. They had a new show in the works, Mm -hmm. and that was Pirates of Penzance, which they had done quite a bit of work on. And they'd left quite a bit of that work back in London and tried to bring most of it with them to New York. Turns out they left a little bit behind. We'll talk about that in a moment. They'd left a little bit behind, but they had done the official New York premiere of Pinafore, the New York premiere of Pinafore in the beginning of December 1879 and December 31st of 1879, just from the beginning of December to the end of December, December 31st, 1879, the New York premiere of Pirates of Penzance. Yeah. Unbelievable. Sullivan basically didn't sleep that month. Because there's so much in it. It's not just so many, yeah, so many different tracks. He had done some work ahead of time. Yeah. And like I said, one of the reasons they left some of the work behind in London, they were also very clever about securing their rights back in England. By having an English premiere as well. And this is the one that was in Devon the night before. Yes, the night before. Kind of a, a quiet affair. For the copyright reasons, so that it would be secured as an English work and then premiered in New York properly as a US premiere. But then is, there was a, a London full premiere of the work we know now later in the spring. Right. The one in Devon was small. It only had about 50 people in the audience. It was a, a troupe of players from the Doily Cart Company who did it right after a performance of Pinafore. They showed up and they had sheet music on stands in front of them. And obviously Gilbert Sullivan weren't there because they must have been in New York. So They were in New York. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were. They, that's why they had left enough stuff back behind. I see. Okay. And interestingly, they left part of Act One behind without bringing a copy of it to New York. And that was part of the stress of recreating it in New York that they had to do it from memory. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was not easy, but they pulled it off. I mean, they... They could do that sort of thing. Yeah, and then the the April of 1880 premiere in London is more like the definitive version that we know now. One other little wrinkle that added to the stress before opening had to do with the band that was hired to play the music, the orchestration that Sullivan was putting together. As they could see this coming together right before opening, they were getting nervous because it was complicated. It was more elaborate music than what they were expecting from a light opera or an operetta. And they went on strike and they said, no, no, you 
you can't pay us as if this were an operetta. This is this is grand opera music. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they went they went on strike. Wow. So this is how Sullivan explained in writing that he had dealt with this situation with the band when they said they needed more money because it was grand opera music. He wrote, I called the band together and told them I was very much flattered by the compliment they had paid to my music, but I declined to submit to their demands. I went on to say that the concerts at Covent Garden, can you help us with where Covent Garden is? Oh, see, sorry, Covent Garden in London, yes. <laughs> yes, okay, he's in New York, of course. He's in New York, so yeah, yeah, yeah. That the concerts at Covent Garden, which I conducted, had just been concluded, and the orchestra there, which was the finest in England, had very little to do before the opera season began, and that I was certain that, on receiving a cable to that effect, they would come over to America to oblige me for little more than their expenses. Nice. In the meantime, I told them I should go on with the opera playing the pianoforte myself with my friend at the harmonium. And when the Covent Garden Orchestra did come, we should have a very much finer band than we could get in New York. I then went to my friend, the manager of the New York Herald, then a very big newspaper in New York, Mm -hmm. and asked him to write an article in the shape of an interview with me on the subject, which he did, and I launched out freely with my opinions. So Sullivan was wow. very clever. He doesn't take prisoners, does he? <laughs> he does not. He got he got the press and the public on his side yeah. that they were being unreasonable. He had this amazing show and everyone was behind him. And he threatened them, I will replace you with people yeah. who are better. Don't threaten me. Wow. That's what's known as a full Liam Neeson, I think. <laughs> <laughs> kind of crazy when you yeah. think about it. But... Uh, The show went on. The band got back in their chairs and they played their instruments. Yeah. Yeah, and Pirates of Penzance uh, went on as scheduled with the band in place. Mm. So now we have the overture.
That was from the Overture to Pirates of Penzance, composed by Arthur Sullivan. Rosie, tell us about the scene that we're about to see in the first act of Pirates of Penzance. So the curtain rises and it's on the seashore in Cornwall, a rocky seashore. There's a pirate ship lying at anchor and the group of pirates are all on the beach drinking their pirate sherry and celebrating the fact that one of the pirates, Frederick, is about to turn 21. Well, it's quite a celebration, but we're going to hear from someone who's not quite one of the merry band of pirates. The lady pirate Ruth, who accompanied Frederick when... He first became a pirate, explains the background to the story with quite a level of guilt because it was thanks to her mistake that she made many years ago that's got him into this situation. Frederick's quite nice about it, but Ruth is obviously feeling rather bad. apprenticing her young charge Frederick to a pirate instead of a pilot, uh, someone who drives a boat. But Frederick? 
He's very forgiving. He seems to take it quite well. And now that he's reached the age of 21, his apprenticeship is over, so he can he can leave them now. He's under no obligation. And he decides that he's going to leave Ruth with them as his gift to them. Faithful Ruth. <laughs> there is an implication that she's not the, the prettiest or the most desirable of ladies. And all the pirates are less than impressed, should we say, and they're not particularly gentlemanly about her staying with them when they try to say that, that she, you know, he would be happier if she went with him. Not very nice. Poor Ruth. Yeah. Yeah, it's not, not very nice. And this leads to the arrival of the pirate king. Yes. Because all pirate ships have to have a pirate king. Yes. And a lot of flag waving with the skull, skull and crossbones. <laughs> and if you're going to have a pirate king... He must introduce himself properly. Oh, better far to live and die Under the brave black flag I fly Than play a sanctimonious part With a pirate head and a pirate heart Away to the cheating world go you where pirates all are well to do But I'll be true to the song I sing And live and die a pirate king For I am a pirate king And it is, it is a glorious thing To be a pirate king for I am a pirate king And it is, it is a glorious thing to be a pirate king It is I help myself in a royal way. I sink a few more ships, is true, than a well-bred monarch ought to do. But many a king on a first-class throne, if he wants to call his crown his own, must manage somehow to get through more dirty work than ever. a glorious thing to be a pirate king, for I am a pirate king. And it is, it is a glorious thing to be a pirate king. It is a pirate king. Well, he is a pirate king, and I would just call attention to his final verse there, where he has what I think might be the most direct social criticism that this show has, mm-hmm. where he says, but many a king on a first-class throne, if he wants to call the crown his own, must manage somehow to get through more dirty work than I ever do. And that's about as rough as this yeah. show gets. Is I'm a pirate, but I'm not as bad as... Yes. Yeah. I'm a pirate, but 
I have my limits. I have yeah, my rules. Exactly. And we're going to learn more about these rules mm-hmm. that these pirates have as we go along. This is a very kind-hearted show, <laughs> even if we have pirates and they talk about killing and they talk about terrible things. But they're not really that bloodthirsty. <laughs> no, not at all. They have their rules and... Frederick is, after all, a slave to duty. That is the, we we haven't mentioned this yet, but that's the subtitle. Yeah. Well, the Pirate King has introduced himself. Yeah, and we have Ruth and Frederick on stage. The The Pirate King is still there, isn't he? He's sort of observing everything. But then I think he leaves Ruth and Frederick to themselves. And Ruth now has nowhere to go because the pirates don't want her. So she explains to Frederick that really she ought to go with him potentially in a romantic way. And he, a young, one would assume, handsome gentleman of 21, and her slightly older in years, he's not sure, because he thinks that possibly he should be looking for someone younger, but he's never seen any other young women, so he doesn't really know context. And she explains, well, no, contextually, she's absolutely wonderful. It's all fine. Let's go ahead. And he agrees, not having any other frames of reference. Well, he asks her, can I trust you in... Yeah. Yeah. He's a yeah. trusting soul, and if she assures him, he believes her. Yeah. And right on cue, over the hill. <laughs> lots and lots of gentle maidens. <laughs> yes, yes, and true to form with the Gilbert and Sullivan crew, we've got the, the male chorus in the form of the pirates at this point, and the female chorus in the form of all these sisters. Yeah, and they're the daughters of a character that's yet to be announced, aren't they? Yes, yes, yeah, they are. Yeah. Yeah, they've arrived on the seashore and they want to cool off, should yes. I say. Yes, yes. Uh, Ruth has departed because he's gotten furious at her. Yeah, you lied. Oh, false one, you have deceived me, he tells her, and he's very angry. And when these young women appear, you can see he's besotted. Oh, they're beautiful. He hides mm-hmm. and all these, these young women come twittering in. They're having a lovely day on the seashore. Yeah. And they decide maybe they'll take off their shoes or socks and enjoy the water. Well, Frederick is hiding behind the rock at this point, isn't he? And he's obviously, he's a gentleman, first and foremost. And so he can't possibly leave them to remove shoes and even stockings (laughs) so that they can paddle when they are observed, as he puts it. Or is it not not unobserved? (laughs) And... And this, this is where he sort of, this is the first time he really presents himself as who he is, isn't it? Because it's, it's the, and he's embarrassed that he's dressed as a pirate. So he doesn't want them to see him as he is. Yes, stop, ladies, pray. He's, he's embarrassed to show himself, but he dare not stay in hiding. It's, yeah. it's a dilemma, but he, he decides to be gallant and, and not allow them to take off another stitch. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously they're horrified because there's this gentleman that's, that's seen them in, with feet out. <laughs> yes, yes. So that the, the gentle maidens are all horrified, not necessarily by his physical appearance, but more by his outfit, because obviously he's a bandit of the law as a pirate, so they all recoil. But he explains that it's the end of his apprenticeship and that he's about to not be a pirate anymore, and that, that definitely helps oil the wheels. But they're still <laughs> not that interested, and so he tries to see if even one of them might fall for... And they're not having any of it until one voice, one little voice. Yes, yes. But let's first hear Frederick's song where he tries to appeal to them. And they're they're willing to listen. They do say, oh, how pitiful his tale. How rare his beauty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he'll he'll see if he can appeal to their kind-hearted natures. Even just one. (laughs) 
That's all it takes. For is there not one maiden breast which does not feel the moral beauty of the making worldly interest subordinate to sense of duty? Who would not give up willingly all matrimonial ambition to rescue such an one as I from his unfortunate position from his position to listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. It airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts where you can find a rich trove of past episodes. I'm your host, Pat Wright, joined by special guest co-host, Rosie Brooks. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up.
Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined today by Rosie Brooks. Hi, Rosie. Hi. (laughs) Well, we're having a lot of fun with the music of Sir Arthur Sullivan and mostly the words of W.S. Gilbert. At this time in the program, we like to say thank you to the performers who've made possible the CDs that we're listening to today. And I will start out by thanking the BBC National Orchestra of Wales under the direction of Richard Hickox, who recorded in 2004 the recording of Cox and Box that we are listening to. The role of Box, the printer, was sung by James Gilchrist, a tenor. The role of Cox, the hatter, was sung by Neil Davies, a baritone. And Sergeant Bouncer, Rataplan, Rataplan, sung by Donald Maxwell, also a baritone. Thank you all for your beautiful work. And Rosie, will you tell us about the Pirates of Penzance CD? Absolutely. So we're listening to the 1961 Pro Art Orchestra conducted by Sir Malcolm Sargent, who I think did quite a lot of Gilbert Sullivan. Yes. Major General Stanley is baritone George Baker. The Pirate King, also baritone, was James Milligan. Frederick, the Pirate Apprentice, is Richard Lewis. Ruth, the Piratical Maid of All Work. The Contralto, Monica Sinclair. The Sergeant of the Police, who was a bass, was Owen Brannigan. And the General Stanley's daughter, Mabel, was Elsie Morrison. Uh, And the chorus, which includes the pirates, the police, and General Stanley's daughters, was Glyndebourne Festival Chorus. Thank you to all those performers. Well, it's Opera Helmet quiz time, but because this is a little bit of an unusual show with the short work in the beginning, and us having just gotten a good start here on Pirates of Penzance, I'll do a brief recap of Cox and Box, the curtain raiser or starter show that we did, the one act, in the beginning, and then I'll let Rosie remind us about Pirates of Penzance that we've done so far. So Cox and Box, whose subtitle I don't even think we mentioned yet, because the subtitle itself is a spoiler. It's Cox and Box or the Long Lost Brothers, which we only learned right at the end of the show. (laughs) Yeah. It's a triumviretta. Three-hander. It's about two men who pay rent on the same flat due to the crafty plan of an unscrupulous landlord, Sergeant Bouncer. And whenever they think something's a bit amiss because their things are not in the right place or they've gone missing, this crafty landlord typically is very successful at distracting them by singing about the army. Rataplan, Rataplan. This does not hold up, however, when one of them gets a day off. And it doesn't all fall apart because they see each other. Things get really complicated when they actually start chatting about the fiancé that one of them has, and they realize it's the same woman that the other one had been engaged to. What are the chances? They both had been engaged to Penelope Ann, but Box had gotten out of his engagement to Penelope Ann by faking his own death. But then he wanted to get back into the engagement when he realized through a correspondence which comes through the door that she has died and left inheritance to her intended husband. The next correspondence says, oh no, she's very much alive and wishes to marry her intended. Change of plans. Neither of them wants to marry her again. (laughs) And then the final correspondence from Penelope Ann says, oh no, I don't wish to marry either of you because I have become engaged to another man, Knox. Because, of course, she can only marry someone whose name rhymes with Cox or Box, Mr. Knox. 
Along the way, there at the end, they discover they must be long-lost brothers. They have so much in common, and they confirm it because there is no birthmark confirmatory evidence, if ever there was confirmatory (laughs) evidence. And they conclude by singing that they wish Mr. Knox happiness, if that's even possible, with Penelope Ann. And Joy is singing all around amongst the men who are not marrying Penelope Ann. (laughs) It's fabulous. (laughs) Yeah, it's very fun. Well, on a more serious note, Pirates of Penzance. <laughs> oh, terribly serious. <laughs> it's not really more serious. It's even sillier, I think. If I went wind back to where we started, so we, we've had the pirates have introduced themselves and we're on the seashore in Penzance in Cornwall, in the UK. And Frederick, who's one of the pirates, is just about to turn 21, which means his apprenticeship is over. So he's free to do whatever he wants. And could we just point out that you mentioned that they are toasting with sherry? Oh, yes. Yeah. There's a, the running joke is that because sherry's obviously the drink of the upper classes or certainly was then. Yeah. Not not the rum. Yo, ho, ho. Yeah. Of, so for pirates mm-hmm. to be drinking it is a bit of a, a, we'll, we'll, it's a we'll joke and it's a nod, nod to that later. Um, <laughs> and Ruth, the piratical maid of all work, it, who is the only lady on the ship and is not treated particularly well because she's slightly older in years and they're not very gentlemanly she it turns out she was frederick's maid when he was a small boy and she accidentally got him caught up in an apprenticeship to be a pirate through mishearing the intention of the father that he should become a pilot so that being the case he has honored his duty as a slave to duty to continue his apprenticeship until 21 but he's about to be released into the world the pirates suggest he should take Ruth with him because they're not really very interested in her, which is rather mean. And she persuades him that him not having seen any other women in life, that she's perfectly beautiful and marvellous and wonderful and absolutely an excellent choice. And there's no need to look any further. And he's quite kind and open-hearted, so he agrees. And trusting. And trusting on the context that she is all those things and really that's as good as it gets. And... All seems well, they, they both leave. But then Frederick is hiding behind a rock on the beach and in, I would, I would say, skip uh, uh, a little cluster of beautiful young maidens who are about to take, not necessarily a dip, but they're going to paddle. And so they t- start taking their shoes off and they're all beautiful young maidens. And he suddenly realises he's been duped by Ruth. He's furious. And he introduces himself to them and wonders if any of them could possibly find their way to falling in love with him. And that's where we're up to. Yes, we've just heard his his tender song asking one of them, please, please take me. <laughs> is, was it, is there anyone? They say, not one. He says, not one. No, no, not one. Well, there may be one. Yes, and that one is Mabel. She feels terribly sorry for him. So she sings a wonderful song. Right, after we've had this solo by Frederick where he mm. does his tenor thing, now she's going to do her soprano thing. Got, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that is how it works. <laughs> it is. Our loving young couple. And she's also going to do a little bit to my ear of that bel canto decoration to her song. Yeah, 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 definitely. It's an opportunity to show off the voice. Certainly, I think it's for everything he was doing as a tenor, she then not competes, but certainly shows. So it's very, very difficult song to sing, I think. She has a lot of fun with it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Take out praise, I 
Well, tender-hearted young Mabel, she has seen fit to pity poor Frederick in his plight, and she loves him. And the sisters are at once aghast, but, but one of the sisters asks them to think about it with some compassion. The sister Kate, who's obviously slightly warmer-hearted than the others, and she's the one that, that says that their, their hearts are not made of leather. Let's shut her eyes and talk about the weather. Just give them a bit of privacy so they can have a little moment. Let's just give them a moment. <laughs> and then there's this wonderful bit where our lovers are having their moment together and this whole gaggle of sisters is chattering on about the weather. <laughs> just to distract themselves, to give a little space to the young lovers. this charming scene of the young lovers and the sisters trying to be as accommodating as possible we have some intruders approaching the pirates are back oh those frightening pirates <laughs> all the pirates try to capture the girls there's a big tussle and they all pick a girl and they run round. and again these are not the kind of pirates that we're used to considering these are not just awful pirates are going to do awful pirate things because the pirates are going to tell us about their intentions they have a first-rate opportunity. To be married with impunity. Yes, that's what all pirates want, <laughs> to find someone to get married to, isn't it? <laughs> and, and just in case you thought you heard it wrong, they make sure you know that they, they know that there's a doctor of divinity in the vicinity. There's <laughs> a first-rate opportunity to get married with impunity and indulge in the felicity of a non-domesticity. Those dastardly pirates, they're going to marry those girls. But spunky Mabel, she has words. She uses the classic technique of saying, do you know who my father is? <laughs> yes, <laughs> she says, my father's a major general. To which the pirates are slightly concerned. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
And right on cue... He arrives, the Major General. And his first comment is not, what's wrong, my distressed daughters? He introduces himself. (laughs) Indeed he does. In the form of song. (laughs) Yes, in what may be the most famous song from this entire show, or at least the most beloved song from this Uh, entire show. (laughs) This is, I am the very model of a modern Major General, which is one of Gilbert and Sullivan's, but Gilbert, the writing, is known as a patter song. And they were very popular at the time. It's the most wordy, difficult and complicated rhyming songs. And there's one in a lot of the Gilbert and Sullivan. And this is, I think, the most famous. And it's to be taken at breakneck speed. The faster the person can sing it, the more impressed the audience will be. And it gets faster as it goes along. So it starts off at a sensible pace. And by the end of it, it's so fast, you can barely hear it. It's so fun when you see this performed because the performer will just play with the audience. And Mm. part of it is he'll pretend to not be able to find the rhyme for the final portion Mm -hmm. of a verse and, and come up with something. And one thing to listen for here is at one point where he pretends to not be able to find a rhyme, one of the rhymes ends with, and whistle all the airs of that infernal nonsense pinafore. Pinafore being HMS Pinafore, previous work that they'd only just finished that was a roaring success. That was referencing their own works in canon. Right. Um, The Modern Major General is also the music to quite a famous song called The Elements, written by Tom Lehrer. The scientist is a satirical writer. When he was at Harvard, I think it was in the 60s, he set a different element to all of the different the tunes to it. And it's again, it's supposed to be sung as quickly as possible. And it's, yes. it's something that people quite like to learn. And then they, it's, it's a party piece that is oft, often wheeled out. And it's to the Modern Major General. And there are lots of takes on the Modern Major mm. General song. It's such a popular tune and doing the Patterson quickly to this tune I I even saw one when President Obama was in office in the U.S. Mm. where there was a a person who impersonated him who did, I am the very model of a modern U.S. president in the person of Obama, which was very funny. Mm. And just another comment about Sullivan and these patter songs. One of the earlier composers who put patter songs often in his operas was Rossini. Rossini had a number of patter songs. Um, Mozart even had patter songs, but Sullivan had a particular connection to Rossini. He went to Paris with, among other people, Charles Dickens in 1862 and got to hang out for a period of time with Rossini and even played duets with him and was very much inspired by being with Rossini. There was inspiration plenty to go around but you know as we've talked about before Sullivan was very well trained but I thought that was an interesting point of connection when I was thinking about the Pattersons. In fact one of the things that Sullivan said to the Strand magazine when he was interviewed in 1895 was that Rossini first inspired me with a love for the stage and things operatic. Wow. Just a little nod to Rossini there. (laughs) Well enough teasing. Shall we hear the modern major general song. Fabulous. I am the very model of a modern major general. I've information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England, and I quote the fights historical from Marathon to Waterloo in order categorical. 
I'm very well acquainted with math as mathematical. I understand equations both the simple and quadratical. About binomial theorem, I'm teeming with a lot of news. Oh, lot of news. Yes, with many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse. I'm very good at integral and differential calculus. I know the scientific names of beings animalculus. In short, in matters vegetable, animal, and mineral, I am the very model of a modern major general. I know a mythic history, King Arthur's answer caradox. I answer hard across it, I have a pretty taste for paradox. I quote in any tracks all the crimes of Heliogabalus. In conics, I can claw peculiarities parabolas. I can tell undoubted raphaels from Gerardals and Zophanes. I know the croaking chorus from the frogs of Aristophanes. Then I can hum a fugue of which I've heard the music's dinner for. Dinner for, dinner for. Yes. And whistle all the airs of that infernal nonsense pinafore. And whistle all the airs of that infernal nonsense pinafore. And whistle all the airs of that infernal nonsense pinafore. And whistle all the airs of that infernal nonsense pinafore. Then I can write a washy bill in Babylonic cuneiform and tell you every detail of Caractacus's uniform. In short, it matters vegetable, animal, and mineral. I am the very model of a modern major general. In short, it matters vegetable, animal, and mineral. He is the very model of a modern major general. In fact, when I know what is meant by Mamelon and Ravelin, when I can tell at sight a mouse a rifle from a javelin, when such affairs as sorties and surprises I'm more wary at, and when I know precisely what is meant by commissariat, when I have learned what progress has been made in modern gunnery, when I know more of tactics than a novice in a nunnery, in short, when I have a smattering of elemental strategy. Oh, strategy. Strategy, battergy, battergy. Ah, I got it. You say a better major general has never sat a G. You say a better major general has never sat a G. You say a better major general has never sat a G. You say a better major general has never sat a G. For my military knowledge, though I'm plucky and adventurous, has only been brought down to the beginning of the century. But still, in matters vegetable, animal, and mineral, I am the very model of a modern major general. Well. He is the very model of a modern major general. <laughs> Interesting, he is in fact modeled on someone we believe. There's a little dispute, possibly someone from Gilbert's family, but it's more commonly believed there was an actual field marshal, a field marshal, Garnet Woolsey, who was the model, at least the mustache and the general bearing, who provided the inspiration for this modern major general. And as a contemporary of the time that this was produced, you might think he would take some offense at this character, but but no. Not only did he not take offense, he memorized this song, and at dinner parties, he would perform it, just like an actor. He would do the entire patter song for his guests. At the, well, I mean, once you go to the trouble of memorizing it, yeah. I suppose you ought to do it any time you have the opportunity. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> so now that he's introduced himself, which is obviously yes. top on the agenda, he's now <laughs> assessing the situation and the daughters explain the terrible plight that they're in, that the pirates want to marry them, which actually yes. isn't the worst thing they could want to do, but that is what they want to do. 
yes. <laughs> against our wills, Papa, against <laughs> our wills. <laughs> and the Major General says that he objects to them as sons-in-laws. Well, we object to Major Generals as fathers-in-law. <laughs> but they wave it. <laughs> <laughs> so the Major General decides to try another tactic, and he knows... Because he's found out. Because everyone knows. Because everyone knows that the pirates have a weak spot. And that is the plight of an orphan. So he sings a song about how he's actually an orphan boy. And to leave him bereft of all his wonderful daughters would leave him alone in the world. Well, unfortunately for the pirates, that's it. They can't do anything. Their emotional blackmail completely successful. Because truthfully, earlier in the story, Frederick has said, you guys are really bad pirates. Yeah, this is the problem. I'm going to tell you this. Before my indenture is up, I just want to let you know you're really bad at your jobs. Just because they're too nice. Just far too nice. Think about it. The last several ships you've run into, the entire crew is orphans. Do you <laughs> think that's really true? <laughs> it's got out that everyone knows you have a soft spot in your heart for orphans because you're all orphans. And so they say they're orphans just so you'll let them go. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what this Major General does. So he will be protected from the pirates' attack and losing his daughters as they want to marry them all. Well, he's telling a terrible story. But it doesn't diminish his glory. <laughs> because he rationalises it. Well, yeah, so it's, it's for the best. It'll, it'll save their, their modesty and his family situation. He doesn't want to lose them, be on his own. No, and this brings in our big finish to the first act, Everyone ends up on stage. We've got all the daughters. We've got the major general. They're singing about being together and having outwitted the pirates by appealing to their kind-hearted natures. The pirates are singing about their kind-hearted natures. And Ruth is going to end up trying to appeal to Frederick's kind-hearted nature. She wants Frederick to feel as he did before when he hadn't seen any other maidens and take her with him. But he's not having any of it because he feels like he's been lied to. That's the end of Act One. Yes, yes, we left the room beneath Away you did deceive me. Away you did deceive me. Oh, do not leave me. Oh, do not leave me. Away you grieve me. Away you grieve me. I wish you'd leave me. We wish you'd leave me. And now we begin Act Two, 
of Pirates of Penzance. And here we are by the ruined chapel at midnight. Major General is sitting looking pensive because he's feeling slightly guilty about what he's done to protect him and his daughters, but not quite guilty enough to come clean with the pirates. No, 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 (laughs) not at all. And uh, Frederick shows up. He does. Frederick shows up and the Major asks Frederick if he can help in any way and if he has any backup that could maybe support his cause against the pirates. And this is when we meet the policemen. Oh, the policemen. I think these are crowd favorites when they (laughs) appear every time. They call to mind the Keystone Cops, honestly. Ah, okay. I've not heard of the Keystone Cops. Oh, uh, famous silent movie characters, those slapstick. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're funny. And the policemen always are. Yeah. When they show up on stage with their tarantara, tarantara. <laughs> We're going to hear a bit of that piece, but can you give us a sense of what goes on in this song as the Major General wants to give his blessing to these men before they go off to defend him? And his daughters. When the police arrive, they're singing that they want to do do the right thing and they're going to protect the daughters and Major Stanley and Frederick. And the daughters are singing, go to death and to glory. And the policemen are like, hang on a minute, what? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> go to glory in the grave. And it's it's a little shocking to them that that's, that's why they're there. Uh-huh. And I don't think, I mean, I, I don't know, but I don't think... Cornwall's known for its crime scene, so I think to have any sort of extreme violence at this stage was probably the first point in their careers that this had even been apparent. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes, and that tarantara, tarantara, and it goes on and it goes on, mm-hmm. and they keep saying farewell. Yes, and they say, Ah, oh, we go, and the daughters are singing, Yes, but you don't go, and they're singing, We go, we go. <laughs> <laughs> but they don't go! <laughs> Yeah, and that can go on for a number of times, depending on what the director has in mind in Uh any particular production. (laughs) When the foreman burst his feel, we uncomfortable feel, and we find the wisest thing is to slap our chests and sing. Threatened with the mutes And your heart is in your butes There is nothing brings a drum Like the trumpet's martial sound Like the trumpet's martial sound Calculated men to cheer 
who are going to meet their fate in a highly nervous state. Still to us it's evident these attentions are well meant. do depart (laughs) and Frederick has a moment alone on stage and then the pirate king and Ruth appear Frederick is startled because after all he's sent a group of policemen off to confront Uh at this stage he's he's out he's not a pirate anymore he's out of his indentures and he's off to lead a respectable life isn't he And this is a very interesting scene with the three of them, because they come in and say, we we were just chatting amongst ourselves and and something so amusing occurred to us that we were talking about. We simply had to share it with you. Well, this is the discovery that Frederick was born on February the 29th, the leap year. (laughs) A most ingenious (laughs) paradox, I understand. (laughs) So as a consequence, even though he has just turned 21, so out of his apprenticeship, and he assumes that means that he's, he's at the age of 21, that's it, he can, he can leave. Well, he's been on the earth for 21 years. Exactly. But the Pirate King explains the, uh, the rules, terms and conditions of the Pirate Apprenticeship mm-hmm. is it's <laughs> actually 21 birthdays. Now, if, if you're born on a leap year... 
that makes him a little boy of five. That's what they say. That's how many birthdays he has to reach his 21st birthday. Uh-huh. Not be 21 years old. Mm-hmm. Oh, the wording matters, doesn't uh-huh. it? Oh, dear. They're very so... litigious pirates. <laughs> Him, how Frederick would the joke enjoy, and so we risk both life and limb to tell it to our boy. That paradox, that paradox, that most ingenious paradox, with whips and quibbles heard in flocks, but none to beat that paradox. <laughs> a paradox, a paradox, a most ingenious paradox. <laughs> However, I've no desire to be disloyal. Some person in authority, I don't know who, very likely the astronomer Royal, has decided that, although for such a beastly month as February, 28 days as a general rule are plenty, one year in every four his days shall be reckoned as nine and twenty. Through some singular coincidence, I shouldn't be surprised if it were owing to the agency of an ill-natured fairy. You are the victim of this clumsy arrangement, having been born in Libya on the 29th of February. And so by a simple arithmetical process, you'll easily discover that though you've lived 21 years, Yet, if we go by birthdays, you're only five and a little bit over. <laughs> Dear me, let's see. Yes, yes, with yours my figures do agree. <laughs> How quaint the ways of paradox, at common sense she gaily mocks. Though counting in the usual way, yes, twenty-one, I've been alive. Yet reckoning by my natal day, yet reckoning by my natal day. One, two, three, four. I'm a little boy of five. He is a little boy of five. <laughs> <laughs> Genius 
paradox. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how are they going to resolve this paradox? Well, Frederick initially says that he was merciful towards Ruth for her mistake, so they really ought to be merciful towards him. And they agree that's the case, but then the Pirate King plays his ace card, which is obviously the subtitle of the opera itself. The Slave of Duty. Uh Uh-huh. So they appeal to his sense of duty and that's it. He's he's stuck. He has to agree to continue to work for the pirates for another, I can't do the arithmetic, but a lot, for a very long time because it's until his 21st birthday. Mm. So that would be his 84th or something, wouldn't it? (laughs) Well, Frederick, shortly Frederick will do the arithmetic for you. Mm -hmm. Not to worry. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So that's been settled. Ruth and the Pirate King depart. Mabel joins Frederick on stage and finds him bereft and can't understand why he's so unhappy because when she last saw him, he was getting ready to go on this expedition to save her father and all her sisters. Yeah, and about to live a a respectable life, but everything's changed because his sense of duty has meant he's got to carry on being a pirate. And she doesn't understand why. Yeah, and she pleads with him and pleads with him, but his sense of duty is more than he can overcome. So he asks her if she's prepared to wait. (laughs) Yeah, and he explains very clearly that he will not reach his 21st birthday. Remember, this premieres in 1879. Uh He says he won't reach his 21st birthday until 61 years later in (laughs) 1940. (laughs) So it's always a laugh line and it makes it very hard with that number stuck right in there to set this in any other time period. <laughs> yeah, because it's part of the joke. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it is part of the joke. And and by the way, I just want to insert something here right now. There was an article in the New York Times written by the famous theater critic Brooks Atkinson in the end of February of 1940 entitled Leap Your Pirate Freed charming article where Brooks Atkinson explained that at last the 82-year-old Frederick, (laughs) (laughs) hunched over as he is, can marry his long-suffering patient Mabel. And it's the sweetest, sweetest article. If you have an opportunity to look it up, I recommend anyone do. It's, It's a very kind and loving article towards these two characters and towards Gilbert and Sullivan. Uh, That's wonderful. And it's kind of fun from the vantage point of 1940 to say, yes, just think of it. That might not seem so long now that it's 1940, but it's like for us thinking of the year 2001, which was also 61 years in the future for them. Or for us now to think of like 2070 or 80 or something. That seems a long time away. Just add 61 to wherever you are. So it's... All right, so she's promised to wait, and he has to continue being a pirate. Mm-hmm. And to that end, he rushes out the window and leaps out of it to join his fellow pirates. Mabel is steadfast and brave, and she decides to take command of the police force who enter in. Mm-hmm. And she tells the sergeant, you must carry on without Frederick. He can no longer be your leader. And the head of the policeman says to Mabel that Frederick's acted shamefully. And Mabel says, no, he's acted dutifully. He's acted nobly. And they agree to continue on their path without Frederick as their leader. They don't really understand what's happened, but mm-hmm. she assures them he's done it all out of a sense of duty. Yeah. And now they sing about their 
their commitment to being policemen. <laughs> and some of the challenges they face. Yes, yes, the constabulary duty mm-hmm. to which they have pledged their lives. When a felon's not engaged in his employment, his employment, or maturing his felonious little plan, little plans, his capacity for innocent enjoyment, enjoyment is just as great as any honest man, honest man's, all feelings be with difficulty smother, difficulty smother, when constabulary duties to be done, to be done, I'll take one consideration with another, with another, a policeman's lot is not a happy one, oh, when constabulary duties to be done, to be done, a policeman's lot is not a Enterprising burglars, not a burgling, not a burgling. When the cutthroat is occupied in crime, crime, in crime. He loves to hear the little brooker gurgling, brooker gurgling, and listen to the merry village chime, the village chime. When the coster's finished jumping on his mother, on his mother, he loves to lie a basking in the sun. In the sun. I'll take one consideration with another. With another. A policeman's lot is not a nappy one. Oh, when constabulary duties to be done, to be done. lot is not a happy one. Happy one. (laughs) (laughs) And we hear a group of people approaching onto the scene. The policemen decide to disperse and hide. And I must confess, they're rather noisy as they enter. It's the pirates. Yes, yes, they're just about to enter. And with what they call cat-like tread, which is done at uh, loud fortissimo. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) All part of the fun. They're there to not only make sure that they get the women that they're after so that they can marry them, they also would like to plunder all the loot from General Stanley's home. Uh But they let us know that they're being as quiet as they possibly can be. (laughs) Never speak a word. (laughs) Yes. And and I want to highlight something before we listen to any of this track. Within this track, you're going to hear what I expect for most people will be a familiar tune. To some, it will sound like Verdi's Anvil Chorus. Ah, yes, of course, yeah. Listen for that after the introductory bits of the song. Listen for the part of the song where Sullivan 
gained inspiration from Verdi's Anvil Chorus. But the tune is also adopted later on and repurposed for another familiar song that I imagine people will recognize as well. We'll talk about it afterwards. We can't like her upon the brave back to the plot I'll harken back to that familiar tune within that song the part that was inspired by the anvil chorus it's also the tune to hail hail the gang's all here never mind the weather here we are together and there are other lyrics that go to it is that a familiar song for you rosie it's it's not i don't i mean i'm not sure if it's an american or it's just i it might be a knowledge to get for me because i've never heard those Mm. words i'm thinking it's a camp song for me (laughs) i think maybe in the early part of the 20th century it was used at political rallies and or it got repurposed in sporting events and all kinds of different ways but it's definitely something that I've heard quite a lot I imagine for a number of listeners it's familiar and it will get used with different words but yeah that's I certainly knew it before I knew it was something that Sullivan wrote oh wow yeah no it's it I I I know it in the context of Pirates of Penzance and that's it (laughs) (laughs) there we go (laughs) all right we've got our quiet noisy pirates Uh (laughs) pillaging the home We've got the policeman hiding, really doing a whole lot to stop it at this point. And then suddenly we've got everyone saying they think Major Stanley is on the scene. And so he is. And before long, the daughters show up as well. 
Yes, yes, the Major General comes. Yes, yes, the Major General comes. <laughs> well, what's going to happen now that everybody's there on stage? Well, this is it. This is the battle scene, isn't it? This is when the police have to come out from behind their rocks and the pirates have to with, with their swords and <laughs> they, have to, they have to go through with their threat. They have to make good their threat. So this is the intention. This is the moment they seize the daughters, pillage the land. Well, who wins? Well, in the battle. Yeah. At this at this stage, the pirates seem to be doing rather well and you think the audience is beginning to think maybe they will because they have the upper hand because the police are scared. Incompetent. Incompetent <laughs> and definitely <laughs> averse to any sort of positive action. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So the battle ensues and when the general sees Frederick, he's relieved because he thinks Frederick is there to save him. Yeah, because he doesn't have the new information that Frederick is now... Back to being a pirate because he had to complete his pirate apprenticeship, which is going to last another 60 years. And he doesn't know that when Frederick learned that he was back under the terms of his apprenticeship, he revealed the lie that Major General Stanley had told about being an orphan. Because of his sense of duty, because he was obligated to them. Because of his sense of duty. Mm -hmm. He's a slave of duty. So he feels terrible about it all, but... His sense of duty says he must yeah. continue to be a pirate. And the pirates are enraged and they tell Major General Stanley to prepare for death. Somehow we don't really fear for his yeah. life, do we? <laughs> no. <laughs> and there's a wonderful line when they say he's not an orphan. And more than that, he never was one. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's one of the many wonderful lines in this yeah. show. <laughs> so, so the pirates really get an upper hand mm -hmm. here yeah and it looks like it's really going poorly for the police for major general stanley yeah. and the general sense of law <laughs> this is it the pirates are going to take over how are they going to get out of it well they have the police and major general stanley but the police i think it's the head of the police he has one last card to play and that's appealing to the pirates sense of duty towards their queen, Queen Victoria. And that's it, they're done. They can't do anything about that because they're a slave to duty to their queen. Fascinating that they say we appeal to your allegiance to the queen mm -hmm. and that that works. Mm -hmm. They say, yes, we love our queen yeah. for all of our faults. They love, they love their queen and they stop in their tracks. And they submit, mm -hmm. they surrender. And Major General Stanley says, seize them, take them to the bar. And he wants revenge on mm. all these pirates who have just surrendered. They've all threatened to marry their daughters. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, yes. And Ruth, Ruth comes in and she says, wait, I have one more piece of information for you. <laughs> one moment, let me tell you who they are. They are no members of the common throng. They are all noblemen who have gone wrong. Ah, it's class once more mm -hmm. to the rescue. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, just as the pirates had said, for all our faults, we love our queen, <laughs> the general says, for all our faults, we love our house of peers. And he immediately hands over his daughters to them and allows them to marry. <laughs> oh, yes, take my daughters, all of whom are beauties. So... The pirates could not marry his daughters, but lords, they may marry his daughters. And that's it. Yeah. Wonderful, happy ending. <laughs> one final rousing chorus of poor wandering ones, and we all go out smiling. <laughs> oh, Rosie, the 
Thank you so much for recommending Gilbert and Sullivan and these two shows in particular. What fun they are. Thank you very much for having me. It's been wonderful.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host, Pat Wright, joined by illustrator and opera lover, Rosie Brooks. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Opera can be challenging, but everyone loves a good story, and a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable, because opera is for everyone.